I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. In April of last year, Facebook sent shockwaves throughout the financial system, announcing plans to launch a new global cryptocurrency called Libra, which it intended to help rewire the ways people sent and used money. But the project met considerable criticism, including from yours truly, for questions raised about a myriad topics, including whether or not the project could undermine the monetary systems of developed and developing countries, and whether or not the project could be violating securities, derivatives, and even banking laws. And then finally, there were questions about the frankness of the disclosures made in Libra's white paper especially those considering the riskiness of the project. But just days ago, a new updated white paper has been released, a self-described compromise speaking to the perceived deficiencies of the initial rollout. Yet are these changes enough, and will they pass both political and regulatory muster? Well, to get an initial take, I've invited two of the brightest stars onto the show who have written extensively on Libra and watched the project closely to debate it out here. In one corner, we have Diego Zuluaga, an associate director at the Cato Institute, to argue for the merits of the reforms. And in the other corner, we have Dan Ari, a professor of law at Cornell University, whom we're delighted to welcome back to the show. My life, man. You know, I won a title a couple of times, did right, but they can't hurt us, man. We're going to do it. Get up in this ring, man. Put on these gloves. Let me show you how to handle You want to let the world know the truth. You don't want I want a fair fight, gentlemen. And welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Chris. It's great to be back. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be on. Diego, maybe you can uh, help set the stage and walk us through what the major substantive changes were that were made in the white paper. And, and, and what were they intended to do? I think you summarized very well what the main controversies were at the time of the release of the first white paper in, in June of last year. People uh, at the policymaker level, but also a lot of experts, and yourself included when you testified before the House, um, raised questions about Libra's potential, potential that something that is backed by so many large corporates, including Facebook, which has 2.7 billion users world, worldwide, that it might quickly become systemic and were it to fail what the consequences might be and the fallout, particularly given that it's a, a very much fundamentally a multinational project. And so it would be difficult to sort this thing out uh, at, a, at a national level. In addition to that, people talked about the impact on the anti-money laundering regime and potentially the use of Libra for criminal purposes. And then um, questions about what it really meant for the Libra blockchain, which is the ledger where Libra transactions would be recorded, to be quote-unquote permissionless, meaning that no one would manage it. How could it be that it could go permissionless and at the same time retain the safeguards in terms of AML, KYC, and systemic risk management and so on that the Libra Association vowed to do? And so the second version of the white paper focuses on those four criticisms. In the first place, they've moved from the initial approach, which, which was a multi-currency stablecoin composed of reliable fiat currencies. People talked about the US dollar, the euro, pound sterling, and uh, the yen, among others, um, that would be used worldwide. And so if you were a Libra user, you would hold units of something that was a composite of several different fiat currencies from around the world. 
they've moved from that to a model where you're going to have it in one single currency for each jurisdiction where Libra is active. That means that in America, you would get a stable coin that would be one for one uh, exchangeable for uh, USD. And in Britain, you would have the same for pound sterling and so on. For the places in which Libra doesn't plan to operate, they still will have a multi-currency composite, but they don't put too much emphasis on what the management of that is going to be. I think their focus is going to be on the jurisdictions. They also specify very, um, in a very detailed way how they will do the due diligence on the participants in the Libra network, because you will have banks who will be doing some of the dealing in Libra units. You will have um, exchanges, uh, which in the regulatory parlance are called virtual asset service providers. And those have to be regulated according to standards set by an international body called, called FATF. And so you will have the ANLKYC standards that are enforced. And there's an expectation that those will be equivalent to whatever financial institutions have uh, anywhere in the world. Libra is also not planning to go any longer from a permissioned blockchain to a permissionless one, meaning that it will still be a restricted group of people that will manage the Libra blockchain. And I think that's a particularly helpful change because it was never clear to me how you could go to something like Bitcoin uh, while retaining the kind of functionality and the low cost and the due diligence arrangements I just described. And so clarifying that they're not going to go in that direction is useful in terms of you know, no longer raising that question. And the final change was to the Libra Reserve, which is, so to speak, the fund that will contain um, the assets that will back each unit of Libra that is issued. And they've specified that they're going to have a capital buffer that will uh, protect against losses where a run to occur or um, a liquidity crunch of some sort to happen or if the assets in the, in the basket lose value. And in addition to that, they specified they're going to use very short-term government securities in the reserve, meaning they'll be very liquid, very unlikely to lose a lot of value in, in the short run. And in that way, they're trying to reassure people that they have the mechanisms to deal with potential instability, but that such instability should be very unlikely to arise. So those are the four changes. I think they're very substantial. They put um, Libra on a different track from the global cryptocurrency label that it ascribed to itself at the outset. And I think they're still promising in terms of addressing particularly the technologically savvy but unbanked population, which is quite significant around the world. So Dan, Diego has really identified, I guess, sort of three big themes here in terms of what he sees as, as the notable changes. On the one hand, you have um, a, a nod towards financial stability, uh, this idea that, well, if you have a cryptocurrency that's backed by multiple cryptocurrencies, uh, there can be lots of, of volatility or arbitrage um, between those currencies, and it can create all kinds of uh, potential uh, instability, and they've tried to uh, sort of address that. And then there are the integrity issues of regulating some of the intermediaries that the Libra uh, project will be uh, depending on. And then, and then finally, you have the uh, robustness m measure, uh, presumably, of, of increasing the uh, capital buffer for, for Libra. Uh, were there any other changes that you saw that you thought were uh, notable uh, and, and worthwhile in your analysis of the uh, project at this point? Yeah, I think Diego gives us a pretty good summary of what the big changes were. I agree that 
the big institutional changes were around the use of existing fiat currency units, the permission network, and a much more robust explanation of the compliance framework around money laundering in particular. But the one thing I wanted to add is that we do get a lot more institutional detail uh, in the second white paper about the role of dealers, uh, as Diego says, about how the reserve will uh, hope to manage uh, in emergency situations, uh, and about the governance of uh, the network itself, which in turn, uh, while great to see, do raise sort of a new set of questions, I think, ultimately, about how uh, uh, the Libra network will operate. And what questions uh, do do you see uh, as still being um, sort of questions that need to be answered? We still don't know what the uh, capital buffers are going to look like. Uh, We know that uh, Libra has reapplied for a payment systems license in Switzerland. Uh, We don't know how high or robust these capital buffers are going to be. And it's important to note here that uh, it's not entirely clear that existing templates are great. Uh, we have in the United States, for example, I've uh, the last time you had me on the show, uh, it was to talk about a paper where we looked at the capital buffers for payment institutions in the U.S. and found them remarkably wanting. Uh, similarly, the Basel capital rules, which don't really rep- uh, apply risk weights uh, to cash and to the sovereign debt of OECD countries, would effectively, if applied to um, the Libra uh, model, mean that they wouldn't have to hold uh, any capital. Uh, in effect. So there's quite a few outstanding questions on the regulatory front, and then there's quite a few outstanding questions uh, on the governance front as well. So, for example, uh, we have uh, now some additional information about the role of dealers in particular, uh, but it's not clear what the commitments of dealers are going to be to actually make markets uh, in Libra. Uh, this idea seems to be something of a riff off the uh, authorized participants that we see in the exchange-traded fund market. But notably there, their contractual commitments to actually make markets uh, in uh, ETF units are very, very slim. Uh, and if something were to go wrong, uh, they don't really have credible commitments to continue to make markets. And that's a problem. So there's also, I think, continuing questions about uh, a broader economic governance. Okay, so what do you see about how the participants charged with running the system are expected to interact with one another? So when you look at the the private clearinghouses and other monetary institutions that have arisen over time, most of the ones that are successful have some significant level of loss mutualization amongst a core network of participants. Uh, and beyond capital requirements, which, as I said, we don't know how robust they're going to be, uh, it's not entirely clear that there is any um, uh, loss mutualization within this system, which then I think raises questions about its uh, systemic uh, stability uh, in the circumstance uh, where we get the type of situation that we're seeing at the moment with COVID, where all bets are off and every institution within the network is going to act in its own best interests and not necessarily those of the stability of the network. Okay, so let me just just jump in right here and and then sort of direct one or two of those observations to uh, Diego. So you know, ultimately, you always have to love are are the conversations between the the lawyers and the economists. But Dan is raising obviously a number of legal questions, but towards the end there, he's starting to get to a a, a number of important sort of economic questions, right? And and part of that observation is, well, is is this thing? going to be robust enough, right, to be able to sustain any kind of um, exogenous shock 
to the ecosystem. And, and that can happen um, in a kind of COVID environment, right? Where you have ultimately the Libra um, cryptocurrency or, or stable coin that, that's still dependent on a certain number of intermediaries to provide a market, to, to, to buy and to sell uh, Libra coins. And if the economics of that activity changes, um, Dan is suggesting, well, we just don't really know how robust the Libra ecosystem will be. What aspects of the system do you think will be most important when it comes to speaking to that risk? Sure. I think those are all very worthwhile points, and I'm not sure that there's enough detail still to be able to satisfactorily answer all of them. But I think we can think about this in the way that we would think about a regular run or a liquidity event or some sort of stressed event that would happen in financial markets in the past. And typically what you have is a flight to safety, and that includes uh, people selling risky assets and moving to government bonds. In this particular case, you will have 80% of the reserve, according to the new white paper, made up of very short-term government securities. And then the rest will be in money market mutual funds, which themselves will invest in government securities. So in a stressed event, we shouldn't expect amount of downward volatility in the value of those assets. However, if you did, there are several mechanisms that the white paper outlines to deal with them. The first is the capital reserve, potentially also as payments firms that are not banks acquire master accounts at central banks, they'll also be able to get emergency liquidity against valuable collateral. So even in a liquidity event, you would have a lender of last resort, just like banks do uh, for those kinds of circumstances. But they also specify, because the funds in Libra will not be insured in the way that bank deposits are, the, Li the Libra white paper does specify that they may delay repayment or they may impose some form of haircut on people who want to redeem during a stressed event, precisely to discourage that kind of run and also to allow the system to recover for the period that the stress lasts for. You know, one of the things about your comments, Diego, and this is something I observed uh, in my own congressional testimony, is that the original white paper made very clear that in its view, Libra would be uh, risk-free. And, and now you see here in this new framework to emergency tools um, to be relied on, first, a capital buffer, and second, support, if necessary, by central banking authorities. How satisfied are you with this architecture? And do you think it is comparable to other products uh, and sufficient from the standpoint of consumers? Um, I don't know that it's necessarily comparable, but the thing I would add here, which is relevant, is that you have 23 members of the Libra Association, which are generally firms with reputations of their own to preserve and with funds of their own, and they will have cash reserves and they will have their own bank lines of credit and so on. And I suspect that where an event to happen in which these firms with skin in the game had to choose between losing their reputation because they let people lose their money in something that was supposed to be very stable, or actually taking a bit of a hit in the short term so that the whole Libra Association doesn't unravel, I think they would choose the latter. They would take the hit. And I think that will help both increase trust in the system but also actually deal with a stressed event in a more effective way than would otherwise happen. 
Dan, you know, you pointed out uh, from your sort of um, a, a more more skeptical perception of, of this project is that there is still some, uh, you know, a number of interesting governance questions, right, which obviously would become more important in the instance of some kind of liquidity event or, or, or stressed event. Um, maybe you could walk us through, you know, your sense as to what could go uh, wrong, uh, particularly given what they've laid out thus far uh, in the white paper. Sure. And I agree with Diego that there's so much that we don't know yet that uh, I'm going to lay out some worst case scenarios. And it may be the case that uh, both the detailed governance of the network uh, and regulation can deal with some of these issues. It's just that at this stage of the design process, we need to be aware of them. So Diego, for example, mentioned a flight to safety. And uh, what's the safest, deepest, most liquid uh, government debt market in the world? Well, it's the U.S. Treasury market, which seven weeks ago um, became deeply illiquid for a period of time because of the strains around COVID. So it's not always the case that even the most deep and liquid markets are going to be deep and liquid. And the flight to safety, insofar as Libra would be incentivized to join that flight, is one that poses risks uh, in its own right. But I think it's also important to note here that insofar as Libra is uh, engaging in this type of uh, business across multiple currencies, is that that flight is happening from somewhere. And as we're seeing at the moment, as we saw in 2008, as we've seen in many crises in the past, the places that it's flowing from are often the sovereign debt and currency markets of other jurisdictions with other currencies. So in every crisis, Whatever looks like a deep market, you got to ask where that capital is coming from. And it may be coming from somewhere that's making another market less deep and liquid. And so it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility and probably as an empirical matter, relatively easy to imagine and look to historical episodes where especially for uh, non-US, non-European sovereign debt markets, that we might not see the type of deep and liquid markets that are necessary for um, Libra to be able to seamlessly and costlessly, costlessly in the sense of not bearing uh, a lot of credit or liquidity risk um, type of trades that it needs to keep the, the reserve uh, afloat. So that's one big issue. A second issue um, uh, relates, or a second set of issues, I think, relate to just the fact that uh, some of the things that uh, Diego mentioned, were not things that we can just assume. So, for example, I completely agree that uh, uh, central bank master accounts are something that can help weather the storm. Uh, But it's important to note that some jurisdictions, the United States being one of them, uh, uh, make it illegal uh, for non-banks to have master accounts. So if we take the existing law as a given, then we have to acknowledge that for uh, at least one of the world's major jurisdictions, uh, we're not going to be able to rely on central bank master accounts. Um, They may be able to, uh, the Libra Reserve may be able to piggyback off the reserve accounts held by uh, various parties in the network. But that raises another set of issues about whether the network is then piggybacking off the financial stability uh, created by the regulation in individual states. And then lastly, most importantly, Diego says that it's a standard thing to do to impose haircuts on withdrawals or some sort of uh, mandatory delay on withdrawal. And I'm not so sure that's standard, really. Uh, That's something that we see in money market funds. uh, And that was something that we only see in money market funds in the U.S. since 2016. 
And it's important to note here that amongst the first financial institutions to receive support were the very money funds that were supposed to uh, instead impose these types of haircuts or redemption gates on their deposit. But those were deemed to be so damaging to those money market holders that the Federal Reserve decided, in effect, to intervene instead. And of course, we don't see these type of problems in banks precisely because of things like uh, deposit insurance and their access to central bank liquidity assistance. Put all of this differently, the fact that I think uh, Libra is acknowledging that it might have to use these mechanisms is a more realistic appraisal of uh, the type of risk that it now knows that it's assuming. Uh, that all of these uh, emergency measures, while individually they might stop a problem, they don't stop the problem of correlation. And as we always say in a crisis, all correlations go to one. And it seems that if the backup to the backup to the backup are all correlated with one another, that much like the COVID situation we're seeing now, is that the illusion of having an emergency backstop is going to be exposed. When that's the case, the last resort becomes the first resort, which is the imposition of these gates uh, and haircuts. And that's something that if the goal is to create something that looks like the existing payment system and allows, allows fast and seamless and credible payments, that this becomes you know, something that we have to really acknowledge as a big difference uh, between Libra and its principal competitors. So Diego, uh, there's a lot in those answers, and I wanted to hone in on one or two issues, especially as we move from the question of economics to politics. So let's jump to the politics of regulation for the moment. What do you think the posture will be by banking regulators about this more modest project, given the lingering questions, the, the lingering political questions um, about Libra, especially given Facebook's important role in guiding it? There's a big difference, of course, between what I think policymakers uh, should do uh, about some of the regulatory challenges that a project like Libra presents and what they're probably likely to do. I think they will remain uh, quite skeptical in the U.S. Um, I would also note, and this is something that Dan mentioned earlier, that the uh, that access to emergency liquidity uh, is still limited to banks in the U.S. and there's been less of a push to let non-banks get involved, even if they accept um, Fed supervision that's equivalent, uh, to, to have them have the same kind of access to Fed master accounts, and I think that could be a problem. At the same time, we have to contend with two things. The first is that you have non-banks rising as providers of financial services, and the U.S. payment system is, for a lot of people, still very costly. And even as we have 97, I think it is, percent of Americans with smartphones now, or any kind of phone, with phones and smartphones, most of them are smartphones, we still have 8 to 9 million households without a bank account. I think the opportunity to bring those people into the payment system in a cheap way is very encouraging. Um, the changes that have been made to the white paper make the Libra coin, if it were one-to-one -one backed with the U.S. dollar, equivalent to e-money, which is which current regulation recognizes already as, as something in which the multi-currency product didn't really fit. And so I think it, it's, not, it's not a revolutionary change. It has a lot of promise in terms of financial inclusion. And while access to the master account would be very nice, we already have financial products where access can be limited during stressed events. For instance, there's something called the negotiable order of withdrawal account, now account, which was developed in the 70s 
to try and challenge the ban that then existed on deposit paying interest. And the idea was that the provider, the bank, could delay payment if he or she didn't have the funds to pay you at a particular moment. This is obviously an emergency event. It's not something that's expected to be likely, but it's not. It's something that has been customary in the past. And so long as you publicize it widely and make people aware of the fact that this is not an insured deposit account uh, on the same level as that you might obtain from a bank, should be allowed and should be legal. And some people will choose it. Some people will have a low enough balance that they don't mind so much about the availability. What they want is fast payments. And let's remember that about half of U.S. households live paycheck to paycheck. It's not like they are able to save very much on their accounts anyway. Um, But they appreciate the fast payments and the low cost. I think there's a market for it. And I think uh, there's there's nothing in our past that suggests this this doesn't fit within the um, realm of regulatory possibilities, so to speak. To follow up on an earlier point you made, Diego, are digital wallets really um, more effective at inclusion than traditional bank accounts? Uh, in the end, won't customers still have to interface right, with, with a regulated entity that will itself um, have to intermediate its own checks and safeguards and, and by extension necessary red tape? So when they survey the unbanked in America, they typically find that the two major reasons why they don't keep bank accounts are cost and trust. Sometimes, you know, a big proportion of the unbanked are immigrants and they come from countries where the banking system is unreliable and they bring that lack of trust with them. And, you know, justified or not, it's something that they feel strongly about. And then cost as well, unless you keep a minimum balance in a lot of bank accounts, it's uh, often difficult not to face some sort of monthly fee. And that can range from 10 to 20 to $25. It's expensive. The opportunity I see here is in having outlets that would take cash from people. And these people already have phone contracts and they will have an app that they can access. And maybe they have to pay a monthly fee, but instead of $12, it will be $1. And in addition to that, all of the AML KYC verification, asking for your social, your date of birth, and so on, transmitting that information, um, sorting through it and uh, keeping it in case regulators ask for it. You know, the tech firms that are involved, and this is not just Facebook, there are a lot of venture capital firms in the Libra Association and others, Coinbase, that are expert at this onboarding business. And I'm hopeful that if you bring more tech players in, you can resolve a lot of the bureaucratic process that discourages banks from reaching out to this type of customer, but also makes it so costly that the customer isn't even interested, even if the bank is. Dan, you know, uh, uh, Diego has, has really made, you know, a, a point that the Libra Association itself has made, um, and it's been one that was announced at the very beginning, which is identifying a real problem in the world, that there are lots of people who are unbanked or underbanked, and they don't have access to core financial services that are really the building block to um, creating an economically sustainable life. Um, do you think that that particular prospect is going to be something that will sway regulators, um, you know, who are taking a look just like you are uh, at this white paper? Uh, or do you think, as Diego had suggested, that that ultimately, even with these changes, that there could be a lot of um, uh, skepticism uh, shown by regulators, and, and if so, do you do you think that you're going to see more skepticism by certain kinds of regulators than others? Yeah, so I think there's two things happening here, uh, and I think from my conversations with legislators, is that they're very sensitive at the moment to issues of uh, financial inclusion, 
and do have an intuitive sense that greater competition for financial services might help with financial inclusion. Although I take your point, um, and it's my question as well, that we we don't fully understand uh, all of the different factors that are driving why some people uh, elect not to be part of uh, the conventional money and payment system, even when they have the technology uh, to do so. The other side of this, um, uh, I think, is Facebook. And it's unfortunately, for optical reasons, really difficult for Facebook to make arguments that use the word competition. Uh, they're all about scale. Uh, they're all about uh, market power uh, and uh, combining uh, their social media power with whatever informal governance uh, sort of role they may continue to play in the Libra Association just doesn't play well. And as a result of that, I think where you're likely to see these uh, arguments about enhanced competition leading to greater financial inclusion, getting more purchase, is in alternatives uh, to uh, the Libra network as a way of uh, achieving that goal. So you're getting a lot of, I think, support behind more in the Democratic caucus than the uh, Republican caucus, most likely, uh, for things like uh, the Fed accounts and various proposals like that. Uh, for the, uh, although admittedly the post office has its own existential issues at the moment, but for things like postal banking uh, and even for other non Facebook fintech lenders, uh, looking for ways for them to provide more robust competition to the conventional banking system. And indeed, even uh, the Fed Now initiative, uh, the Fed uh, ultimately um, uh, might be dipping its toes back in the water of creating its own real time payment system. So I think I agree with Diego completely that the need is one that's pressing. I think there is some politics there that does uh, uh, is pushing us uh, towards opening up competition in various ways in money and payments. Uh, and there, I do think that Facebook suffers from a competitive disadvantage uh, insofar as it comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, and that, I think, is definitely part of what's going to influence what happens next with the regulatory response to uh, the white paper 2.0. I, I agree. I agree with Dan on the point about competition. The, I think one thing that's helpful to, to understand the kind of environment that Libra would be coming into is one in which you have very large incumbent institutions, some of which are technologically savvy, uh, some of them less so. I'm talking about the big banks. And then you have this conglomerate, uh, including or mainly led at the outset by Facebook, but including several others, coming in, trying to challenge them. And I'm not expert in the baggage that Facebook comes in with, and I think people make very good arguments as to why we might be concerned, and certainly about past practices. But I think the arrival of tech firms into banking is something that overall can be a benefit. And in addition to that, it can be faster in terms of bringing financial services to the unbanked than central bank provided alternatives. Let's not forget that the Fed vowed to create a real-time payment system at the end of last year, but it's only going to be available in 2025. Now, that's six years from now, or five years from now. Just think about five years ago, what the payment system looked like. It looked very different, even at the retail level, from what it is today. So if we're going to expect innovation to come in five-year plans like that, I think we are probably going to be disappointed. Gentlemen, thank you so very much. We're going to have to leave it there, but uh, this is certainly an issue that we're going to have to keep our eye on. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much, Chris, Diego. It's been an absolute pleasure. So I'll hand it to Facebook for this. They don't give up. 
And to their credit, they seem to have taken at least some of the criticism seriously and advanced a project with less obvious risks than the first iteration. Though, as we heard, there are still some extremely important, serious questions that remain unanswered. But in the end, I'm guessing that the ultimate acceptance of Libra from a regulatory standpoint will revolve around whether or not policymakers trust Facebook. After all, Libra was Facebook's idea, and until recently, Facebook was bankrolling the entire project. And this, for many policymakers, may be where the real systemic risk lies. To what extent should the government bless and enable a global behemoth that has not had always the best of all corporate reputations or records? Well, we'll be sure to find out in the months ahead. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.